Hello, everyone. I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you from Colorado Springs. And we'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Each week, Warren and I bring you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, all designed to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. On today's program, there's been an explosive growth in donor-advised funds. We'll explain what they are and why they're becoming an important philanthropic tool, even for those who aren't wealthy. We'll also have an update on the standoff between the state of California and Pastor John MacArthur. And we continue our Generous Living series with the story of a couple who doesn't invest just money, but also time, lots of it, in the ministries they support. We begin today with news about one of the nation's largest evangelical youth ministries, Young Life. Yeah, a social media campaign started by two gay former Young Life staffers is putting pressure on Young Life to change its position on sexuality. Kent Thomas and Christina Hoffman are two former Young Life staffers who are now openly gay, and they first shared their stories in July on social media. Thomas used the hashtag do Better Young Life, and others latched onto that idea. So the hashtag Do Better Young Life has since become a social media campaign advocating for Young Life to change its sexual conduct policy for leaders and to embrace LGBTQ relationships. This hashtag movement now has hundreds of stories via social media. Young Life was founded in 1941, and its headquarters is here where I am in Colorado Springs. Uh, it has chapters in nearly 9,000 schools in all 50 states, plus 90 countries. And in 2018, their revenue topped $400 million. And Young Life has long had a conduct policy that confines sexual activity to that within heterosexual marriage, just like, by the way, virtually every other evangelical church or ministry. But Young Life critics, including even some conservative critics, have pointed out that the organization has always walked something of a tightrope. Young Life has long been a place where kids who might never darken the door of a church could feel welcome. Some kids attend meetings for years for the social aspects of the meetings, for the community they provide, for example. But like most Christian organizations, those in leadership must commit to different standards, and Young Life has historically been clear about those standards. Yeah, that's right, Natasha. And I should add that although an online petition asking Young Life to repeal its sexual conduct policy has in fact generated about 6,700 signatures, that's just a tiny fraction of the literally tens of millions of young people who have been touched by Young Life during its almost 80 years of ministry. Now, Warren, I understand that Young Life President Newt uh, Crenshaw has responded to the online controversy. Yeah, he has. He said that Young Life was creating a council that would review the stories of current and former Young Life members who have, in his words, experienced pain in our family based on their race, gender, sexual orientation, or other factors. The statement also said that Young Life is 
always reviewing our policies and procedures to ensure that our behavior reflects the kingdom of God. So do you think that this means Young Life would change their policy? Well, no, I don't, actually, at least not in any substantive way. In an internal letter dated several days earlier than that public statement that I just read to you, Natasha, Young Life Vice President for Communications Terry Swenson acknowledged to the organization's leadership, and this is a direct quote from that letter, the discomfort and sadness we feel to hear stories of those who have been hurt in their Young Life experiences. But he went on to say, we are not reviewing our policy or theology. And some leaders are coming to the defense of Young Life and its decisions to stand firm. Yeah, that's exactly right. Josh Wester is with the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, the ERLC, and he wrote uh, a public statement in defense of Young Life. He acknowledged that Young Life is in a complicated and multifaceted situation and that the do-better Young Life stories are often marked by pain and real sincerity. But he goes on to say this, at the same time, there is no real question about what Young Life should do, at least in terms of the substance of its policy. Young Life's views on sexuality are, after all, not really Young Life's views on sexuality. For Christians, the Scripture set forth a clear and intelligible pattern, not only of what it means to be male and female, but of the nature of sexual intimacy and relationships as well. He goes on to say, these things are not ancillary to the Christian life, but central to what it means to faithfully follow Christ. For Young Life or for any Christian organization, obedience to Scripture and fidelity to the Christian tradition requires that they maintain their prohibition on any kind of sexual activity beyond the bounds of heterosexual marriage. Now, Warren, our next story involves a popular financial tool for donors called the Donor Advised Funds. First, can you tell me what a Donor Advised Funds are and why this year has seen Donor Advised Funds report record increases? Yeah, I think I can, Natasha. I'll give it a shot. Uh, imagine that something happens in your life that suddenly gives you a lot of money. Let's say you sell a business that you've been building for 20 years, or maybe a stock that you bought a decade ago and forgot about is suddenly worth 100 times what you paid for it. Okay, I can imagine that, but it kind of sounds a little bit fantasy fiction to me. <laughs> well, I understand for me too. But the truth is that we live in a huge, dynamic country, more than 300 million people. So these kinds of situations are actually not all that uncommon. They happen every day. The stock market right now is at an all-time high, at least the S&P is, and we're uh, in a country that's getting older. So a lot of people have been building assets, maybe uh, business or paying on pieces of property for decades. And some people uh, just have strange things uh, that have accumulated in value, land, coin collections, art, and other non-cash assets. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, well, a lot of these people have two considerations that they have to deal with uh, whenever they want to sell these assets. Or, and one of them would be 
taxation. And the other would be, well, what are they going to do with that money, especially how are they going to give it away? Uh, If you sell a business without a plan, you can end up giving a lot of that money to the government in taxes. Giving the money away is a great way to help others and to avoid paying at least some of those taxes. On the other hand, if you get a lifetime of cash in one year because you sold the business, making quick decisions about where to give that money could also result in poor decisions. And that's where a donor-advised fund comes in. Um, A lot of people choose to put their money in a donor-advised fund temporarily, which is managed by a sponsoring organization, usually a foundation like the National Christian Foundation. When you do that, you get the full benefit of a tax write-off when you make that gift to the foundation, but you can trickle out the donations from the foundation to ministries on a more orderly schedule and over a multi-year period. So it's a tool uh, for people who get an annual bonus, for example, at year end, or maybe a big cash windfall, but don't want to rush their giving decisions. Okay, so that gets us to this week's news from the National Philanthropic Trust. Yeah, the the news this week uh, from the NPT, National Philanthropic Trust, which, by the way, claims to be the nation's largest independent sponsor of donor-advised funds, they reported that a record $2.11 billion in donor-recommended grants occurred just from them alone uh, by the end of June, June 30th, which was when their fiscal year ended. They said that that's a 54% increase over the previous year. Dang, that's a lot of money. Yeah, it is. And NPT uh, is not alone. There are hundreds of other similar types of foundations. Charles Schwab, for example, manages more than $3 billion in donor-advised funds. There are more than 100,000 donor-advised funds in the country, and hundreds of thousands of charities have received money from those donor-advised funds just in the last year alone. And I should admit, in a spirit of full disclosure, that Ministry Watch often gets contributions from donor-advised funds. Well, Warren, we need to take a break, but when we return, an update on what's happening with John MacArthur's Grace Community Church and its standoff with the state of California. I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you from Colorado Springs. We'll be back after this short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Last Friday... A California judge ruled that megachurch pastor John MacArthur and his congregation can continue meeting indoors for worship, but they must wear face coverings and practice social distancing, according to the California's Superior Court judge's order. 
Uh, well, when that happened, uh, Natasha, I've got to tell you, my inbox was clogged with press releases and statements from John MacArthur's law firm, from PR firms, and from others declaring that John MacArthur had faced down the state of California and had struck a blow for religious liberty. But it appears they declared victory a little too early. Yeah, uh, because uh, just a few hours later, the California Court of Appeals issued a stay on that lower court's order. Um, And that meant that the county's health department order should remain in effect, prohibiting John MacArthur's Grace Community Church from meeting indoors. But on Sunday morning, the church met anyways, inside, unmasked, and without adhering to the social distancing. Yeah, they sure did. Uh, MacArthur noted the church's defiance uh, during his service. He said, the good news is that you're here. You're not distancing and you're not wearing masks. The congregation uh, cheered in response. So what happens next? Well, it's pretty obvious that John MacArthur is going to keep meeting and preaching if he isn't thrown in jail, though he has said that he would be willing to go to jail over this. I should also add for our listeners' benefit that we record these conversations on Thursday afternoon and post them on Thursday night, so sometimes things happen on Friday that changes things. And of course, this news originally started unfolding last Friday. But it's still pretty obvious that the church does plan to meet this Sunday. About all I can say for sure is that we'll keep watching this story, and I'm guessing that we'll have a Another update on the website sometime during the week ahead. Well, speaking of updates, we published a lengthy story this week that talked about the role social media played in the downfall of Jerry Falwell Jr. Yeah, we did. Uh, It's a great story. I really recommend that uh, folks read it. Uh, But the essence of it is this. Jerry Falwell had done some pretty controversial things over the years, but it turned out that it was social media, Instagram in particular, that left a visual trail of his questionable activities. And it was the accumulation of these posts and photos that ended up playing a significant role in his removal as president at Liberty University. As we've both said, the story goes into some depth on this topic, more depth than we have time for right here. So I recommend that all of our listeners go and read this article. But Warren, um, what are a few key lessons for ministry leaders that we can learn? Yeah, well, Jerry Falwell ended up liking the photos of young women um, who had posted selfies of themselves in swimsuits. Some of them posed pretty provocatively, you might say. And so I think one piece of advice I can say with some certainty is men don't do that. And if you're a married man in ministry responsible for the well-being and spiritual growth of thousands of young people, including thousands of young women, especially don't do that. Well, that seems pretty obvious. Well, you would think so, but because it's not, uh, at least it wasn't to Jerry Falwell Jr., it it is worth saying out loud, even at the risk of sounding uh, dogmatic. You know, I think, though, part of the problem here, Natasha, is that we treat social media sort of like it's disposable. We like things real quickly by just, you know, hitting a button on our screen, and then we swipe on, um, not putting any thought into what we just did and probably even forgetting about what we've done just the second it's off of our screen. Uh, If there is one thing, though, that should be true about Christians, it is that we should be intentional in what we do and what we say. We should be aware that our actions have consequences. Christian leaders should be particularly mindful of that reality and be extraordinarily careful on social media platforms. 
Mm, that's great advice. Well, let's shift gears here for a bit, Warren. Police reform has been much in the news, and now Christian groups are hoping to take a role in making sure that reform is done with an eye towards biblical ideas. Yeah, a network of more than a dozen Christian groups is launching an initiative to address police reform. It's called the Prayer and Action Justice Initiative, and it's bringing together Black, Hispanic, and Asian organizations, along with groups that are focused on prisoners, prayer, and public justice. They'll advocate for greater equality, accountability, and transparency, uh, and other reforms in our criminal justice system. Uh, The coalition launched this week. In fact, it was on Wednesday, August the 19th. And it includes the National Association of Evangelicals, the American Bible Society, the National Day of Prayer Task Force, Asian American Christian Collaborative, the National Latino Evangelical Coalition, the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference, One Race, World Relief, and the Church of God in Christ, which is a historically black Pentecostal denomination. The coalition also includes Prison Fellowship, a Christian organization founded by the late Chuck Colson, and the Center for Public Justice, a Christian think tank, and both lead the initiative's nonpartisan government advisory work. Yeah, I should add, too, that the guy behind this initiative is Justin Gibney. Uh, He was also responsible for the Churches Helping Churches Challenge that we've reported about a couple of times uh, on both the website and uh, mentioned here on the podcast, Natasha. They've raised more than a million dollars since April to provide grants to mostly minority and immigrant churches that were in danger of closing during the coronavirus pandemic. Well, there's a lot more to this story. And if you want to find out more, go to ministrywatch.com and you'll see it right on the front page. Now we're going to take another break, but when we return the next installment of our Generous Living series, I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Now, Warren, I was taken by your story that you posted on Ministry Watch's website this week, uh, a little Christian school in Oklahoma City. Yeah, on the east side of Oklahoma City, there's a nine-acre plot of land. It's a little wooded paradise in this urban area that's home to an organization called Little Light Christian School. Now, what's distinct about this private school's location is that it is also right in the middle of the zip code that has the worst incarceration rate in the entire state of Oklahoma. But that's exactly what Robin Curry wanted. Robin Curry launched Little Light Christian School about nine years ago as a private 
tuition-free school. In fact, that's a key factor there, tuition-free. Its doors are only open to what she calls a very exclusive group, uh, children whose parents are or were incarcerated. She said that the mission of the school is to break the cycle of generational incarceration. Uh, she did, and and she started in 2012 uh, with just six students uh, in the first grade class, but they've added a grade each year, and this year they have a staff of about 20 teachers and administrators, and they'll have 45 students going through the program. Uh, Corey said that she's thrilled to be launching the school year and can't wait to welcome the new students and families despite the challenges of COVID. She says, we are a Christian school, so we are Christ. Christocentric in everything we do. We're not a legalistic school where we have do's and don'ts. We are all being transformed by the power of Christ together. And we know that the Lord works through rich educational environments many times to help people. And that's what we're all about, she said. Wow, that is such a great story. Now, we have one more before we go, and that is the next installment of our Generous Living series. Yeah, when Neil Holzapfel met Lisago Holzapfel, at least that's who she is now because, of course, they're married, in a New York City coffee shop a few years ago, he said that he knew almost immediately that he wanted to marry her, despite the fact that, at least from external appearances, they couldn't be more different. Neil, it was a tall white man, Lisago is a black South African woman who is short of stature, but she has a really big presence. But it ended up being a match made of heaven, so to speak. Yeah, it did. Uh, Neil is an avid investor. He was in New York because he had a career going on Wall Street. He'd been a generous financial giver. Um, Lisego, though, is a doer. Now, what they shared was a heart to serve the underprivileged, uh, especially orphans. Uh, Lisego, in fact, was an orphan. Uh, Her father, her last living parent, died when she was 12 years old. Together, the couple now lives and serves in South Africa through a nonprofit called Raise the Children. Um, A minute ago, I said that he's a giver and she's a doer, but it turns out that together, they're builders. Their nonprofit, Raising the Children, works to educate orphans and other vulnerable children in rural villages. Yet Lasego also started a, an investment firm called Bocamoso Impact Investments with the goal of creating opportunities for employment locally that are both sustainable and scalable. Um, they gathered students uh, from various villages in the area to go through an entrepreneurship program that includes uh, both farming and discipleship. They're eventually placed in fields of their own to farm, and they begin hiring other locals to help them. There's a lot more to this story, and you can find it by going to the Ministry Watch website. It should be right on the front page, but if by the time that you get to that site, it's rolled off, just uh, use the search engine and put in the keyword, Generous Living. Not only will this story pop up, but you'll see others in our Generous Living series. That's right, Natasha. And I also want to remind everyone that our Ministry Watch extra episode this week is an interview with Michael Renault, the deputy editor of World Magazine. He talks about world's approach to journalism, and we discuss why and how journalism can play an important role in educating the body of Christ and in enhancing the credibility of the church in the world. Also want to remind everyone that there's a quick and easy way that you can support this program that doesn't cost you a dime, and that's simply to rate us on your podcast app. The more 
ratings we have, the better our podcast does with search engines. You can also leave a comment there if you want to. I read every single one of the comments, and I'm really grateful for the feedback. I find them encouraging and helpful. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosal and Steve Gandy. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Goddard, Stephen DeBerry, and Casey Suddeth. Writers who contributed to today's program include Christina Darnell, Adele Banks, Emily Miller, and Warren Smith. I'm Natasha Smith in Colorado Springs. And I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch Podcast. May God bless you. <laughs>